And today's text really sort of draws out that, um, that potential of viewing this either through a fundamentalist or a liberalist point of view. Uh, the thing about this text, um, it's easy to possibly idolize the, the writing, forgetting that Peter was a fisherman, forgetting that Peter lived you know, this, this crazy life for three years with Jesus that changed his life. And it's easy to, to just to, 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 to forget that, that Peter was a real man. At the same time, it would be easy to dismiss this text that we have today on the basis, um, it would be easy to dismiss it by being just Peter and ignoring the obvious fact that this text that we're going to read today, and as is true for all of 1 Peter, is very complex, and it's very rich, and it's very, um, it's beautiful in a lot of ways that cannot have just come from a fisherman from Capernaum or Galilee or wherever he was from. So, I just want us to sort of enter into that space and think about that sort of conflict between that fundamentalist viewpoint and that liberalist viewpoint. And as we talk about today's text, we're also going to be talking about that sort of strange and dangerous dichotomy, but more specifically as it pertains to the way that we live our lives as Christians. So today, the call, again, is for us to take a third-place incarnational view of this text knowing that it is both fully from man, but also fully inspired by God. And at this point, up to 1 Peter, uh, Peter has issued this letter to the church. This is the first century church in a pre-Christian world. This is the first time the church has been anything or done anything or been anywhere. And Peter writes this letter. These people are scattered. They're persecuted. um, They're under trial. But Peter reminds them that they've experienced a new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and noting that Christ will be coming in just a little while. Now, it's easy for us, 2,000 years after the fact, to sort of take that sort of message for granted, because we've known that's been true for 2,000 years. But go to this place where Peter is writing this letter to these people, the first time the church has ever existed, to hear this message. You are under trial, you are persecuted, you are scattered, but yet you live with a new hope. You live with a new inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unspoiled, it will not fade, and Christ is coming back in a little while. This is the context that he writes it in, and this is the text that we read, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. So if you have your Bible, please turn uh, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And the text is all up there, you can follow along if you want to, I know that maybe for the back it's a little small. But the text that we have today is Peter following on that basic declaration of the Christian faith. And he says to the church, and, and, and again, we're, we're, doing, we're doing First Peter over the course of weeks and months, right? This is one letter. This was intended to be read in one sitting, but we're, we're pouring through it over the course of a long time. But he continues in his letter, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, this text is eloquent and it's very beautiful. And, 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 and it is eloquent and beautiful in such a way that we can see that incarnational work of the Holy Spirit of God moving through Peter. And this text is very much, in, in many ways, a continuation of the introductory message that Peter is going to give. He's continuing that introduction to tell his people that I'm about to write to you about some more important things. This is very much introductory in the letter. At the same time, it very much sets the stage for the meat of what the rest of First Peter is going to say. Peter is about to address issues of uh, the revelation of Jesus, and he's already done it uh, previously in chapter 1. He's also about to contrast the way that the Christians are called to live with the way that they had been living before, and he's continuing to speak about these things that are going to run through the theme for the rest of his letter. Um, he is calling us in this passage to a new way of living that's based on that new hope that Peter called out prior to that. It's eloquent, it's beautiful, but if you notice, this is also a very difficult uh, uh, paragraph of Scripture to read. And it's very difficult because of what its core theme is. Now, this is another way that we can see that Peter was inspired. In the Hebrew way of writing, you all know this if you've been at Cornerstone for a while, we've talked about this before, there's this thing called a chiasm. Is that right, Justin? I pronounce it right? It's chiastic writing. And, and what Peter does, this fisherman from the, the, this possibly illiterate, at least for a point of his life, man did is wrote this chiastic parallel paragraph where under this type of writing, the first, um, the first and last lines, they link together and make a common theme as do the next two and, and penultimate lines. They link together and make a common theme, as do the third and the third to last. And then finally, what we get is the middle, and the middle is the core. Under chiastic parallel, under this type of writing, what we are immediately drawn to is that core message of Scripture. Now, if you're like me, when you read this paragraph, First Peter 13 to 21, this is probably exactly what you are first drawn to, right? You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if, as we're, we're you know, um, engaging this personally, that is probably the paragraph that we're all drawn to, right? You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's right. That's where he wants us to be drawn to. But it's a difficult, difficult text. Because no one could possibly say that that call to be holy is something easy, right? Which is exactly why Peter begins this paragraph the way that he does. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, in the Greek, that phrase, preparing your minds for action, actually literally translates into this. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's a, it's a weird phrase. Where else have we heard, maybe in scripture, the phrase, gird up your loins? Anyone? What? Armor of God, Ephesians 6.14, right? Paul says, gird up your loins with truth, right? There's another place in scripture where, where God, who said it? I heard it. Gene, what is it? Job, right? 
there's this phrase in Job that appears after all, you know, the story of Job. He's lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost his crops. He's lost all of his money. He's lost his health. He has nothing. He is reduced to absolute nothingness. And he sits there in patience and in quiet, listening to his friends both complain about God and also glorify God. And all this time, he sits there. And at the end, in Job 38, God says to Job, after all that he has suffered, God says to Job, speaks out of the whirlwind and says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. In the Hebrew, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you will make known to me. Or, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. After all that Job went through, this is how God starts his conversation with him. You, Job, gird up your loins like a man. Act like a man. Be a man. It's time to cowboy up, is what God said to Job after all that he had sat through, right? Now, there's this interesting thing this morning. I I was asking Olivia, because she dresses me, what I should wear today. And she had had suggested that I wear, I have this this dasha, which is a long uh, ankle length uh, uh, type of uh, dress for men. And I got it in the Middle East, and she had, without knowing what I was going to talk about, she had suggested that I wear this. And I thought, for about three minutes, that's a great idea. Because then I could show you all how to gird up your loins. But then I realized that you would probably not be able to pay attention to anything else I said the rest of the morning. So I chose not to do it. But instead, we found this really great how to gird up your loins. Listen, girding up your loins serves two purposes, okay? Back in that day, back in the Hebrews and even in the first century, Men and women would wear these long robes. And if you were going to get ready for action of any sort, whether hard labor, construction, or battle, if you were going to battle, you would gird up the loins. You would take that that robe and you would pull it up and then you'd bring it from behind and you had a belt and you'd tuck it in the belt and you would get ready to go so that you had freedom of movement. It served two purposes. The first was that you could be ready for hard work. The second, men, you guys know what I'm talking about here, it's often good, and without being graphic, it's often good to have things trussed up in that area. You know what I mean? Guys, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. We, we all have stories, right? There's, there's tender parts there. And we all have stories that are both mixed with pain and humor. Mine is shortly after I was married, there was the red purse incident. We were going out on a date, and I was goofing around with my wife, and she turns around with a red purse and throws it at me. And I spent about five minutes on the floor. It's, it is good to have things trussed up. And it is good to be ready for action, to protect, and to be ready for hard work that's going to happen. So when, when, when uh, Peter says to this scattered, persecuted church, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Dress for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. He is saying to the people, these Christians, under persecution, get ready because I'm about to introduce to you something that is very difficult. And it is going to go right after the soft places of your mind, the places that are going to hurt. And you need to be ready for this action. You need to be ready for combat right now because this is about to get real. Okay? That's why he says that because of this middle thing right here. But the reason it's hard may not be the reason that we think it's hard. Because again, it's chiastic. Yes, you shall be holy for I am holy. But then he takes this 
surrounds it with this other thought. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter is introducing something that is radical here. Because he is looking at these people. The church that he's talking to are both Jews that have converted to know Jesus, believe in Jesus as their Savior, and Gentiles who have never known Jesus and maybe have never known a God or whatever God they've known has been the series of gods. And he is talking to both of these people, now collectively called Christians, and he says to them, you need to move away from the former patterns and the former passions of your life. And what does he call those former patterns and traditions of their lives? He calls it ignorance, right? Now, now don't hear that as an insult to say, you were both ignorant for the ways that you used to live. But he's saying that you didn't know better. And I'm explaining to you something now that is true. Gird up your loins with the truth, as Paul would say. I'm introducing to you some truth here that is essential so that you walk away from the way that you previously lived. Now listen. The traditions and behaviors of these people's forefathers were important. Whether you were a Jew on this side, those traditions and those behaviors were important to those people. If you were a Gentile, those traditions and behaviors were important to those people. And Paul says to all of that, he says, this all needs to go away because it all doesn't matter anymore. And why doesn't it matter? Because you were ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed. Jesus paid so that you would not be bound to those traditions. Whether you're standing here or whether you're standing here, you have been ransomed. So step away from those former ways of ignorance. This is radical thinking, folks. This is something new. No one at that time, other than Jesus himself, had introduced that kind of thought where you have got to step away from what you were once doing and come into this new place of holiness right here. Because this is what God is calling you to do. Um, He calls both of them, both Jews and Gentiles, to this. And he says, whatever baggage you were once carrying is no longer baggage because it's been ransomed. So step into this new life, this new way of viewing God. Um, There's an interesting parallel between the first church, the people that Peter is physically, actively speaking to, and those of us today that continue to hear this message, right? Sure, the church today is not scattered. We, praise God, are not persecuted. We do not suffer the same way that those people suffered. But in a lot of ways, we're very same, aren't we? We also carry baggage with us. We carry baggage of spiritual thinking. We carry baggage of religious thought. We now live in what we could call a post-Christian world. Peter was talking to a pre-Christian world, Christians in a pre-Christian world, before the world started to understand and had a collective knowledge of who Jesus was. He's speaking to them. Today, even as we read the text, Peter is speaking to Christians, what we could say is a post-Christian world, where the world has forgotten the ways of Jesus, and we're moving to a new place. And Peter is speaking to us in that same place too. We have the same baggage. And so the call for us is equally true. That this hard work that Peter is calling us to do, is it applies to us as well. Because we need to gird up the loins of our mind to get ready for this message of holiness. But we still don't exactly know what all of this holiness entails. We just know that I come with my own spiritual and religious baggage. You come with your own spiritual and religious baggage. Some of you maybe never knew Jesus, and you come with whatever baggage you had from your former life right? 
that doesn't change. The fact that we are 2,000 years removed from those people doesn't change the fact that we find ourselves in the same condition. And so Peter, in, in encouraging us to gird up the loins of our mind, is saying, even to the church today, there is hard work to be done. So you better be ready for action. And that hard work is right here in the middle. But he's got all this other stuff, too. Before he gets to that hard work, he's got these other things. See, when we talk about holiness, and, and if you're like me, and we read this text, and we immediately are drawn to this, whoa, we're immediately drawn to this. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And it, the temptation in reading this text, apart from all of the stuff that comes before, and apart from all of the stuff that comes after, is that we are tempted to think that this is a call for me to make myself right. Oh no, I need to make myself holy. Oh no, he says, as I am holy, I need to be holy. And that's the temptation that we get to. Why are we tempted to do that? Because of the baggage that we carry. Because of the the religious and spiritual baggage that we carry. We come to the book of 1 Peter and we read this and we go, oh, I've got work to do. I've got work to do. I've got to make myself right. I've got to make myself holy. The temptation in that is to make this concept of holiness. Don't be confused. Peter is definitely calling us to holiness. But the temptation for us is to make that call to holiness simply about conduct just about what we do and what we don't do, to make it simply about the things that we are restricted from doing or the things that we have been released to do in our freedom, right? That's the temptation. If we just take the text just there for all that is, that's where we'll go, guaranteed. That's where I've gone in my life. It's probably where a lot of you have gone in your life. And it's a dangerous dichotomy that it represents because what this does is produces this, dual state of being, right? Where if all holiness is, is a call about my conduct, the things that I do or the things that I don't do, the things that I'm restricted to do or the things that I am free to do for the sake of freedom, which we know Jesus also came for, then we've got this conduct-related dichotomy that's very dangerous, the fundamentalism and law and what I'm going to call libertine and unfettered freedom, okay? We sit in these two dangerous dichotomies, where the result, if all I'm doing is changing my conduct, if holiness in that center section is just about me changing my conduct, and if I find myself currently in this fundamentalist place where the law is what governs me, and my conduct is what makes me either good or not good, my conduct is what makes me either acceptable to God or unacceptable to God, and I have to make a change, and he calls me to holiness to put aside that as ignorance, then I just step over here, and I I find myself in in a state of unfettered freedom, right? Or, conversely, if I'm in a state of unfettered freedom, and I read that call to holiness, and I think it's only about my conduct, what I do and what I don't, and I see Paul say, that's ignorance, you need to move away from that, then the temptation is for me to simply walk over here, restrict of Jews on the left, and Gentiles on the right, he says the same thing. God is requiring about me. The problem is that I have made holiness about what person can say, ah, God has already declared me good, and therefore I can do whatever I want to. And over here, under law, under fundamentalism, under judgment, I am sense of holiness is only centered around me. That fear is about what is God going to do to me when he gets, that Jesus was already here, and he already did something. 
And so we find ourselves torn. We find ourselves just as I think the first thing, the text before and after that, uh, that green highlighted section. Anything to do with what you are able to perform or what you are able to restrict yourself of Jesus Christ. And then he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, both in the past, when he was here, in the flesh, and what he, Jesus Christ, as he was, as he is, and as he is to come in the future. The basis of holiness is therefore rooted entirely in the poly, for I am holy. This is the hard and difficult part. And maybe that's what you've heard before, right? That as I am holy, in the sense of this, um, as he who called you is holy. See that at to bottom, okay? Flowing from top to bottom. Think of it as a cause. That as is flowing from my holiness, from the grace that, will be brought to us and from the grace that was the ransom that he gave us and in his second coming in both revelation it's not about that list of do's and don'ts it's not about the things that i am restricted to is equally important god really did set us free for the sake of free. neither of those two things neither of those two things comprise our holiness our holiness is, is is defined by our devotion where does our devotion lie? Does our devotion lie? So our salvation and our redemption are already set in stone. Jesus has already come. So if we are basing holiness on Jesus came once, he died once, he rose from the grave once, and he did a book um, by Brian Smith uh, called The Good and Beautiful God. And, and Smith says in that holiness, there is no way that God would ask us to, to be the same type of holiness. There is no way the same type of holy because only God is holy. He is the only one that is holy. And he also knows that we as people also act consistent with our nature. We will always act consistent with our nature. And what does Peter tell us in, 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 in the verses right before this? That we have a new nature. It is that salvation and redemption that gives us our new nature that we are now called to act consistent with. So in the same way that I am holy, as I am holy, that flows down to you if you are devoted to what you should be devoted to. Besides, think about this. If holiness was simply about a list of do's and don'ts, where would we draw the lines to separate ourselves from what is unholy? At its basic root, holiness means that we are to be separate, that we are to be set apart, right? If, if holiness was simply a list of do's and don'ts, where would we draw the lines to find ourselves living a holy life? We can define our culture any way that we want to, right? We can define our culture, say, um, say our culture is the culture that's reflected in Hollywood. We could do that if we wanted to. And, and, and structure and comprise a whole list of do's and don'ts that can make us holy based upon a comparison with that Hollywood culture. That might be easy to do. We might all be able to do that pretty easily, right? Maybe, maybe not. Or what if we defined our culture based on Philadelphia? Oh, maybe that gets a little harder, right? We can, we can set our list and do's and don'ts based on that culture and find ourselves walking in this weird way. Um, maybe we could call ourselves holy, maybe we couldn't. Or... 
What if we set our culture based on South Central Pennsylvania? Would it even be possible for us to make a list of do's and don'ts that could separate us from that culture to find and declare ourselves holy? There's no way we could do it. In so many ways, like even living in the land that we live in right now feels really Jewish, right? There's, there's a lot of religion here. There's a lot of things that we can just structure our lives and live our lives and say, yeah, perfectly holy. But is this culture holy? As good as the good things of this culture are, as good as the, as the call deep within this land to seek God's face, as good as that is, does it make the people holy just by conforming to that culture? It doesn't. So holiness cannot simply be a list of do's and don'ts. It has to be based on where our devotion lies. But it's also not a balancing act, right? So it's not like having one foot in the fundamentalist and one foot foot in the libertine and trying to figure out how I can best walk in that way, right? Because that's not devotion either. What holiness is, is something different. It is that third place, incarnational, reliance only on the revelation of Jesus Christ, both as he was and is, and as he is also to come. The point is not that holiness is found in how we act, right? Um, but in whom we are devoted to. And so when, when Peter talks about this, this is what he's talking about. The revelation of the grace that was brought to us through Jesus Christ both before the foundations of the world and what will be brought to us at the second coming calls us to be obedient children. We are obedient children because we are devoted to the knowledge that Christ has ransomed us. It's already been done. So holiness is devotion and obedience to the Christ that was revealed in the past and in the future based on what he has already done. Not based on what we can do, not based on what he's going to do in the future, but what he has already done. And the question is, do we find ourselves devoted to that? If we find ourselves devoted to the Christ that was and is and is to come, then what the text says is that holiness will follow from that. Not the other way around, right? Holiness will follow from who Christ was if we find ourselves devoted to that, if we actively devote ourselves to that place. So this is the stage that Peter has set in, in this text, this, this stage of holiness that he's set. And he's calling us through the next thing, right? He's going to be talking to the church. He's going to be talking to us about places that are going to hit us really deeply, right? He's going to be talking about our marriages, He's going to be talking about our submission to authority to include slaves and masters or servants and masters. He's going to be talking about our conduct in other places. And he's going to be talking to the way that the church bears up under suffering. These are huge, huge issues. And if we look at the text that follows after this in an easy way and say, yeah, I think I got that. I mean, I think I know what Peter's saying without girding up the loins of our mind to be ready for what he's going to say, then we're doing it wrong. That's why this text is so critically important. Because this call to holiness is absolutely real. 
You shall be holy for I am holy. Because I am holy, you shall be holy. Because I am holy and because of what I've done, you shall devote yourself to who I am. And as a result, you will be holy. And then as I talk about these things that are going to come up, as I talk about your marriage relationships, as I talk about your submission to authority, as I talk about how you bear up under suffering, if you devote yourself to who I am, then your response to those things will be holy. It's a big concept. And I I don't want you walking away from here saying, ah, you know, Barry's got a... You know, he's got the whole holiness thing figured out and he set it all for it. Holiness is a deep, deep concept. We can talk for hours and days and weeks about what it means for us as Christians to be holy, as God is holy. Because we can talk for an eternity about the depth of God's character and the depth of who he is and the depth of what his holiness is. Um, But this is just simply to center us very in a very concise place where Peter looks at us and says, prepare for action here. This work is really, really hard. This is mentally really hard work. And I'm going to walk you through this hard work with the devotion to Jesus Christ. Um, if you recall, um, again, Justin, the first, the first week that we were going into, um, we were going into 1 Peter, he laid out some constants. And these constants are found throughout 1 Peter. There have to be some constants that help us ground ourselves into this, constant, into this concept of holiness, right? And in 1 Peter, what Peter has done and is going to do more is to ground us in some of those constants. Some of those constants of holiness are love, goodness, and obedience to God. And the text of 1 Peter is centered around those ideas. So while we might be tempted to look at 1 Peter in terms of the do's and don'ts, and the conduct that we think he may be calling us to, what he's really trying to do is ground us onto these constants of holiness, of love, goodness, and obedience to God. And obedience to God contains that love and goodness. So as we continue through First Peter, as you meditate on this scripture, the question is, what does God actually require us to do? Band, you can come back up. Um... Justin challenged us the first week. He said, he posed the question, or the statement, do not sacrifice. Do not make sacrifices that God does not actually call you to sacrifice. There's a lot of power in that concept, right? As long as we look at holiness as as a strict list of do's and don'ts of how we should behave, the real problem is that we miss the character of God. And we can find ourselves in a place of sacrificing things that God has never asked us to sacrifice, right? Because that's not what his character is. His call to us for holiness is a call to us to connect our hearts deeply with his heart, to to connect our minds in a sober way, assessing our situation, our position with him, and in a sober way, connecting with his mind. It's a call for us in our spirits to connect our spirits to his spirit so that we can understand what his character actually is, what he's actually calling us to do, and what he's actually calling us not to do. And so I pose that question for you as Cornerstone. What is holiness? What does God actually call us to do to be holy? What does 
God actually call us to sacrifice to be holy? Now, as I pose this question, Joy and the band are going to play a song of reflection for us as we consider these questions. What I want you to do is take some time in the space that you're at with the knowledge of the scripture that has been revealed to you, the knowledge of Jesus that has been revealed to you, and ask yourselves these questions. As I examine myself, as I examine the condition of my holiness in position with God, with a sober mind prepared for action, what does God actually call us to do to be holy? What does God actually call us to sacrifice? As you consider this, I invite you to do so not as an individual, but as a collective, as part of the body. What is Jesus saying to the church about holiness? What is God calling for his people to do? What is God calling for his people to sacrifice? Now, those conversations can be had because one of the great constants that God also gives us, that Jesus gave us, was his church. And so we have each other. From this place, we have each other to continue that conversation to say, you know, this is, this is my concept of holiness. Test me. As I apply this to my life, test me. Tell me if, I am, if, if my heart and my mind are connected with God's heart and mind. Because I trust you. We have that space to do. But in this point right now, under this time of reflection, I invite you to ask those questions of yourself for the church. What is it based upon what you know about the revelation of Jesus Christ, both before and in the future? What is it that we know about him that he calls us to actually do, to seek holiness? What is it that he actually calls us to sacrifice, to seek holiness? If you need some help, I put some scripture references on there. Amos 5, 22 to 24, Micah 6, 6 to 8, and Isaiah 58, 57. Um, if you need help, if you need some text to look at to help guide your thoughts, go there. But listen to the music that is sung over us. Engage God in that place on behalf of your church. What is God calling us to do to be holy? What is God calling us to actually sacrifice in that call to holiness?